In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So for anyone who was here last week, um, can you guys give us a recap of some of the major events? We studied Joshua chapters 1 and 2. Um, so what, uh, what time period was the book of Joshua set in? So before the judges, right? So before the judges is what comes after Joshua, right? So what what is what is like the condition of the Israelites in Joshua chapter one? What has just happened? Some important event has just happened. Sorry. So they are going to enter the promised land, but but what is the what is their status right at the very beginning of the book? Right. So they are they had just wandered for 40 years in the desert, okay? And they were led by Moses up until the promised land, okay? And then Moses died. And what's the significance of Moses dying? Why did Moses die here? Because Yes, that was the symbolic, right? So the symbolic is that Moses represents the law. And the law cannot bring you all the way into the promised land. Yes. But why specifically did Moses not enter the promised land? Because in earlier, when God was telling the people, when God was telling Moses to bring water out of the rock, he told him to speak to the rock and water will come out of the rock. But instead, Moses was kind of agitated and he took his staff and he struck the rock and, and so for that reason, because he didn't have faith to believe that God would bring water out of the rock um, by speaking to it. So God told Moses that he would not inherit the promised land. So he would die before ever entering. OK, so this is the, the condition that the Israelites are in. OK, and we said the book of Deuteronomy, which is the last of the books of the law. This the, the book Deuteronomy means like the second law or the retelling of the law the second time. This is where now that Moses, he is um, there with the Israelites and he is essentially telling them everything that God has commanded them to do from the beginning. He is saying it again. This is why, for instance, the first time that the Ten Commandments is given is in the book of Exodus. But you see the Ten Commandments listed again in the book of Deuteronomy. Because God, because Moses is recounting again all of the law, right? So all of that has happened, and now they are at the, the border of the promised land, okay? What is the promised land? What is the name of the country? Canaan, okay? And so the name of the country is Canaan, and it is filled with all these different types of pagan people that are living there. And that God is judging those people because of their wickedness, and God is going to use the Israelites in order to destroy them. So he's saying, you're going to enter into this land. You're going to cross the Jordan River. You're going to enter into this land. You're going to take the land and destroy these enemies, and the land will become yours, and this is what is to become the nation um, of Israel. Okay? So what happened uh, last time? We said, now after Moses died, who becomes the leader? Joshua. Okay? And we had heard about Joshua... Um, a couple times before he was like the apprentice the assistant of Moses he went up actually with Moses on the mountain at the time when Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments uh, and so the, one of the things we read about last time is uh, Joshua sends out spies um, across the Jordan into this land to kind of scout out the land he sends these two spies they go into the city of Jericho um, where they meet a woman famous woman What's her name? Rahab. Okay, she's a harlot, but she believes in God. She believes that God has given them the land. She believes that they are going to come and destroy the city and all of the people there. She asked them to, to give her protection because she um, protected these spies from being found out. The spies go back, um, and now the people are getting ready to cross over the Jordan in order to enter into the land. Okay? Any questions about anything up until this point? <coughs> okay. Chapter 3. It says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they crossed over. 
So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. So what is the first, the, the first people that are going to cross into the Jordan is who? Who are the, who are the people who are going to cross first? The priests and the, the Levites, okay? Now, why, why are they? The Levites are the ones who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant. So if you remember, the Ark of the Covenant was like one of the most sacred um, articles of the tabernacle that would be kept in the Holy of Holies. And within the Ark of the Covenant, there is um, the Ten Commandments. There is uh, a box of manna to remember how God is protecting the people and brought them the manna. And there's also the rod of Aaron. All of this was inside of the Ark of the Covenant. And so this was like the most sacred of all of the, the, the items in the tabernacle. And it had to be carried a certain way, okay? And the tribe of Levi, these Levites, were the ones who were permitted in order to uh, do anything related to the tabernacle, okay? Including carrying the Ark of the Covenant using these special poles. Um, there were rings on the Ark. They would carry it on their shoulders walking forward. So the priests and the Levites were going to bring the Ark of the Covenant, and they were going to first enter into the Jordan River, and everyone else, Joshua is telling them, when you see them begin to move, okay, um, uh, then you will also begin to move. You will, go, uh, you will set out from your place and follow them. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. So they were to follow um, quite a ways behind them. Uh, and Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Okay, so they are about to see a miracle, right? Because how is it that they end up crossing the Jordan? Hmm? So it split, yes. So it's a little different actually than the Red Sea, because in the Red Sea, it says that the water split, right? And so they had a wall of water to the left and to the right, and they walked through. But we'll see how it's slightly different with the Jordan. But essentially, yes, God is going to stop the water, right, so that they can cross over into the Jordan. So they are about to participate in this uh, great miraculous event, this great work of God and the Spirit of God. So Joshua is telling the people prior to being participants in this um, act that they are to sanctify themselves for the Lord will do wonders among you, okay? So this crossing um, over the Jordan, just like we had spoken about in Exodus, the crossing uh, of the Red Sea, which is a symbol of baptism, so also here this crossing is, is like a symbol of baptism, okay? Um, it is, the, it is the, the baptism for entering into this promised land, and just as a person who uh, is about to be baptized, should purify themselves, should make a confession, should commit to living a, a spiritual life. So also here he's telling the people, um, sanctify, uh, sanctify yourselves. Tertullian, he says the following. He says, those seeking baptism should preoccupy themselves with fasting, praying, watching, and prostrating, together with confessing all their previous sins, right? So this is what here Joshua is saying. He's saying, sanctify yourselves, prepare yourselves. Also, St. Cyril the Great, he says, If your wedding day is approaching, wouldn't you forsake everything and dedicate yourself to the task of preparing for the banquet? The day of dedicating your soul to its heavenly groom is approaching. Would you not stop preoccupying yourself with the worldly affairs for the sake of gaining the spiritual? Let your mind be purified as though with fire. Let your soul melt as though a mineral to get rid of impurities Pray more persistently so that God would make you worthy of the eternal heavenly secrets. So here, this is a, a, like a, a question of, of priority and also of, of like, like comprehending the magnitude of what was happening. Sometimes when it comes to the spiritual things, we take them very lightly. You know, like we've come to the church thousands of times. Um, we've attended liturgies thousands of times. We've taken communion many, many, many times. Um, we stood for prayer many times. All of the spiritual things that we believe in and we are called to do and we acknowledge them, but we do them often 
And sometimes when we do something often, we begin to take it very, very lightly without understanding like the full magnitude of what it is that we are doing. Like when we are partaking of the body and the blood of the Lord in the liturgy, that this is the flesh of God, that this is the flesh of the creator of the universe, that this is the flesh of the person who created us from nothingness. Okay, so that we are partaking of him and that he is allowing us to partake of him. Something that it says even the angels when they look at in wonder, like because the angels don't partake of his body and blood. We as human beings have been granted this blessing. So here when St. Cyril is saying that we are should be preparing ourselves, let your mind be purified as though with fire. Let your soul melt as though a mineral to get rid of impurities. Like when we are coming to stand before God, whether in the liturgy or in any prayer, how serious are we and how serious are we in our life? You know, it's very easy for us to become kind of, maybe use the word like um, dissipated, drunk even with the world. You know, we become so drunk with the world because we are in the world and we are surrounded by the world and we surround ourselves with the information that is in the world, the people that are in the world, the ways of the world, the process of the world, the work we have to do in the world, the expectations we have of the world, and we find ourselves so immersed in the world that the thought of God and the uh, perception and realization and the awareness of God can sometimes become faint to where it doesn't seem real to us. It seems like a fantasy. It's easy for us to believe in the world because we see the world in front of us and we, uh, we, we, we conduct our, our, our transactions in the world, we, we communicate with people in the world. We're always reminded that the world is a real place because every time we wake up, we see the world, right? And we're in it. But how do we remember that God is real? You know, how do we, how do we see God? We don't see God with the normal senses that we have in our body but we see him through the spiritual senses, right? How is it that we see God? We see God through prayer. We see God through the sacraments. We commune with him and experience him to know his reality and his truth, not through the normal senses, but through these spiritual senses, through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And if we were to meditate on the presence of God always, like the saints, you know, like, like those people who we read about, who lived uh, a life in isolation away from the world so they could be completely 100% consecrated to the prayer, to, 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 to worshiping God. Those people did not forget that, that God is real and God is present because they, they removed from themselves every distraction and they stayed completely focused on the one thing that they knew would abide and remain, that everything else in the world would perish everything about them even their own bodies but the one thing that would remain is God himself and so they said I'm going to focus only on God 100% everything else is irrelevant to me except this mission now maybe we are not all living in isolation in the desert far away and we have other responsibilities but even all the things that we do that are necessary in the world we can still do them for Christ and in Christ and for a heavenly purpose so even as I work in my normal life, I can either go to work for myself in the sense that I'm going because I need to survive and I want to make money for myself and I want good things for myself and so on. Um, and I'm not saying that it's, it's wrong to, to, to work with that motive, okay? But, but what is the greater purpose and the greater motive, okay, is that God gave me this job, God gave me this path, and I should glorify him in this path. And yes, I'm also living off of it. You know, it is necessary for me. But my greater kind of desire is I want to glorify God in this path. Whatever God, whatever path God has chosen for me, let me glorify God in it. So here he's saying, you're about to cross into the Jordan. But what is about to happen is not a normal thing. It is not that you're just going to casually cross over a river just like every other river you have crossed. God is going to manifest himself. And when we speak about miracles, miracles are the manifestation of the presence of God doesn't mean that he is suddenly more present than he normally is. He is equally present as he always is. But in a miracle or some supernatural event that God is about to do for them, he is making himself known in a more clear way to get our attention even more. If we truly had eyes of faith, then we wouldn't even need this. We wouldn't, it wouldn't even make any difference to us whether there is a miracle or not. Because our faith in God and our awareness of God and our spiritual sight to see God is unwavering 
regardless of whether there's a miracle or not. The miracle is almost kind of like anticlimactic for us, right? Because the climax is we know that God is present everywhere, right? And so we don't need to be reminded of such all the time, okay? So here God is making himself present. And Joshua is saying, sanctify yourselves for the Lord will do wonders. Like be prepared. Like, okay, m maybe on a, on a regular basis, we struggle to remember that God is with us. You know, how many years has God been sending them the manna from heaven? And after some time, be like, yeah, you, you just take it for granted. There's bread going to come from heaven today. You know, it's, it's just the norm. You know, like that's what I'm expecting to happen. Maybe we don't look at it and be like, wow, look, the bread is coming from heaven. Maybe the first week it was like that. And then after a while, you, you get used. I mean, imagine, think about all of the blessings that God gives us all the time. The fact even that we can wake up in the morning and our bodies are functioning. Right? How often do we take such a thing for granted that our bodies even function? The, the, the complexity of the body, the way that God has made it, that he breathes into us and we are able to live and to, and to, 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 to go about our life right, in the way that we do and to think and to be aware of ourselves and all of the gifts that God has given us that, again, we, we look at it all and it's just like all taken for granted by us. So here he's saying don't take for granted what God is doing. Right? Don't take for granted that God is the one who is leading you through this path, that he is the one who protected you the 40 years in the wilderness, that he is leading you across the Jordan, that he is going to destroy all those enemies. Right, As though God hadn't done enough miracles for them all throughout the 40 years, the bread of heaven, the tabernacle, everything, the Ten Commandments, as though there hadn't been enough miracles yet, that God is saying, I will do even more miracles for you. Okay, So come and see, prepare yourself for what is God is doing. Then Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. Okay, so he's telling them, cross over. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and they went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Okay, so Joshua, as we mentioned last time, he had big shoes to fill. Moses was the greatest prophet that the Israel had ever had, okay? He is like the, the pinnacle of the, of the prophets, okay? And he led them out of Egypt who, after they had been in slavery for 400 years. And so he was very revered and very respected. And so the people would look to him and they would follow him because of who he was, how God worked with him, and they trusted him. So now that he had died, okay, and here comes Joshua, right? It's not that he was unknown, but how can you fill the role of Moses? You know, how can you be the next Moses, right? It's, uh, so, so God kept reassuring Joshua, okay, that, that he will be with him just as he was with, with Moses. And so what we see is that the miracles do not subside. The protection of the people does not change. Everything about the way God treats the people is the same because Moses didn't actually do anything, right? What is it that Moses did? Moses was obedient. This is what Moses did. Moses didn't command the miracles. You know, even though Moses, when he lifted up his, his staff to part the Red Sea, it wasn't Moses parting the Red Sea. It was God parting the Red Sea, right? And so just as God parted the Red Sea through Moses, God is also going to allow the, the people to cross over the Jordan River through Joshua, all right? So who is it that's behind all of the, the blessings that the people are receiving? It is God himself. But the people... Um, because, again, of our uh, humanity, that we like to look to something visible, right? We like to see something visible, and we see, like, God is kind of represented by this thing, which is why also the people were very, like, um, you know, were, were very into, like, the Ark of the Covenant, believing that the Ark of the Covenant was going to bring them victory and so on, because it's, it's, a, it's a concrete object that they can look at, Okay. So they would see Moses as this figure, and now they, they can see Joshua as someone to replace him, that God is still going to work through him, and, and God is saying, I will, I will exalt you in the sight of Israel, right? Meaning when the people see that it is through your leadership that all these miracles are happening, they will accept you just as they accepted Moses before you, and that they will follow you, because Joshua had a huge responsibility, right? He had a huge responsibility to bear on himself, because because he is now called to lead all of these people to salvation, right? And he has no power in himself. But we see Joshua and his, um, you know, and his obedience and his submission, 
We don't actually see him ever say to God, no, I can't do it. Choose someone else. This is too much of a work for me. How am I going to do this? No, actually, he just accepted it. He said, okay, you know, whatever, whatever it is you ask me to do, um, I will do. So God here is exalting him. He will bless his leadership. He will give him victory over his enemies. He will give him wisdom in guiding the people, right? And here as like the, the first kind of major event that is about to happen under the leadership of Joshua, just like the first you know, event that happened with Moses as they were leaving Egypt is he, they crossed the Red Sea. Here they are crossing the Jordan River as kind of a parallel, right? You see, just as I was with Moses, so also I will be with you. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, when you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Okay? So here he is he's saying, Come and stand in the Jordan, and it is through the power of God, okay, that, that he will drive out from before you all of these people. These are all the people that lived in the land that was to become the nation of Israel. Okay? And from the spiritual perspective, these nations represent the kingdom of Satan. And the Ark of the Covenant, of course, is the divine presence of God. Okay? So it is like in the divine presence of God, when God's divine presence enters into this place, all of these nations, all of the kingdom of Satan is eradicated and wiped out because it cannot stand in the midst of the, uh, the, the presence of God. Just like in the New Testament when the Lord Jesus Christ was casting out demons, obviously through the power of God because the kingdom of Satan cannot stand in the presence of the kingdom of God, and yet the people accused him and said that he is driving out demons by the power of the demons, and the Lord Jesus Christ told them obviously how that doesn't make any sense. Okay, it is through the divine presence of God that these nations are being wiped out. Now, therefore, take for yourself 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe. And it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off the waters that come down from upstream and they shall stand as a heap. So in this case with the river, okay, um, what he was doing is he essentially blocked the water, right? As though imagine putting like an invisible wall from the source of the water. And so the water piled up as though it is a, is a heap, as a wall. And so it just cut off the water supply so that the rest of the river just drained out and now it became dry and they could uh, walk across. So it was when the people set out from the camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as those who bore the ark came to the Jordan, and their feet of the priests who bore the ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan flows overflows all its banks during the whole time of the harvest, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zeratan. So the waters that went down into the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, failed and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Okay, so... This is what happened, stopping the flow of the river. Then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan. So the, the priests with the Ark of the Covenant, they remained standing in one place in, in the Jordan River. The land was dry. All of these people kept crossing, crossing, crossing until everybody crossed. And it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priests' feet stood firm. You shall carry them over with you, and you shall leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Okay, so why is he asking him to do this? To make a memorial, right? He said, 
take the 12 stones. Each stone represents a tribe, which are the 12 tribes of Israel. So it represents the entire nation. Take stones from the river, 12 of them. Set them up as a memorial where you will lodge on the other side of the Jordan because you every time that you look and see these 12 stones, it will be a memorial to remember how God allowed you to cross over the Jordan River in order to conquer your enemies. And it is something that um, the, the people will continue to see year after year after year. Okay, And this is why it is important for us to, to remember history. Right? Because without a knowledge of history, we don't know where we came from. And we don't know what happened in order to get where we are. Right? We are just completely um, kind of like, like without any kind of root. Right? Like, a, like a tree that is growing that doesn't know the root of, of how it got to be where it is. And this is kind of the problem with, um, kind of you, s you, s you see this like play out in like the, the culture wars kind of that we have in our society. Where you have those people who are labeled like the traditionalists or the conservatives, and you have those who are labeled like the progressives. Okay, the 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 traditionalists or the conservatives. Okay, a big part, and I'm not trying to get into politics, but I'm saying one of the big kind of uh, principles of it is let's do what we've done before. Like let's look at how things have been, and we want to maintain it. Like we want we want to keep it going. We want to preserve it. We want to pass it along, you know, and that's kind of where we are, right, in the church. Is the church is we receive faith and then we pass it along, right? So in order for us to understand the faith, we look in the past. You know, we, we look at the past and we see how, how, did they, how did we get the faith to begin with? What is it that God has done to work in, in us, in the church? How is it that we can take this and preserve it and to deliver it to the next generation so that they can continue to deliver it, so on and so on and so on? Right, the faith that was delivered once for all by Christ to the apostles, we want to preserve that faith and bring it in the future to the future. Okay. Um, the opposite kind of view, um, like the progressivism view, and the reason it's called progressivism is we want to progress. We don't want to just look at the past and preserve the past. We want to change. Right. We want to grow beyond. We want to advance. Okay. And I'm not trying to say that there's something wrong with advancement because obviously we benefit all from advancement. But there's different types of advancement. Like you can say there's technological advancement, okay? But but there's a fundamental, you know, when it comes to faith, that we believe that there is a fundamental set of principles that are true and that we want to preserve them because it is the truth. And so to change those things goes against the truth. And so the idea of just wanting to keep changing, changing, changing for the sake of change and for the sake of progress, this is when we run into a problem, okay? The idea of having this memorial is because we want to look at the past and understand the past. This is why you see maybe in our society there are those people from the progressive camp who are wanting to destroy monuments and statues and things like that because exactly what it is is a memorial. It's to remember about something that happened in the past, and we want no connection to that. We find flaw in it. We find error in it. We don't want to identify with that past anymore. And so we tear down the things that remind us of the past. Whereas here, Joshua is saying, no, we erect things so that we remember the past, so that the next generations come and remember what is it that God has done with us. And we want to keep telling that story again and again and again so that we do not forget that we are the children of God. It says, Then Joshua called the twelve men, whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God <coughs> into the midst of the Jordan. And each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of his tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you, when your children ask in time to come, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Like the children would see this memorial, these stones, and then they would ask, like, where do these stones come from? Why are they here? And then you have an opportunity to answer that question and to recount the story so that you would instill faith into these children who are asking this question. Okay? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. 
And the children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones from the midst of the Jordan, as the Lord had spoken to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them to the place where they lodged, and laid them down there. Okay? And again, they brought twelve stones because it represented the whole people. That the whole people were one people. This is maybe something else that we in our society forget. That we are supposed to be one people. You know, that maybe we have differences of opinions about things, but, but, but we are one people in the end. Like we have something in common in the end. And that common thing is the thing that, that we build our identity on, which makes us to be one. In this case, the oneness is not just an ethnicity. The oneness is we are all the ones who were slaves, were brought out of Egypt together, wandered in the desert together, were saved by God, entered into the promised land together, received from God this, that God has a purpose for us, that our history is filled with the blessings that God provides, and this is what brings us a, a national unity together. Thank you. This brings us a national unity, right? Later on, much later than this, after Israel had been established, there was a time where the kingdom of Israel split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, right? And this was a time, again, of forgetfulness. Like, why are we splitting into two kingdoms when God is the king, when God is the, 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 the ruler, the head of all of us, and, and, and you and me are both the children of the same God, right? Because people began to place more emphasis on other factors, and people began to turn away from God, and specifically at the time, the northern kingdom, they, they, they began to worship idols and so on. And so, so that brought a separation because the thing that united us together, which is the common history of being the people of Israel under the guidance of the protection of God, was now no longer solid like it was at the beginning, right? Our self-identity, our self-understanding was not like it was at the beginning, and so we began to fracture, right? So whenever we don't have something in common, common values, common beliefs, common history, common something that we all kind of rally around, then there will be nothing but fracturing, okay? This is the problem with the mes message that we have in our country about diversity, okay? We always talk about diversity like it is the best thing ever in the world. Like we just want diversity everywhere. We want ultimate maximal diversity because diversity means that there's no biases there's no prejudice there's no racism there's everyone is equal right sounds nice okay but there's a caveat with diversity okay diversity in what because if you have maximal diversity in every possible way you can imagine diversity then that means you have nothing in common right because where is the unity that comes from the diversity the, 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 the nice thing about diversity is that you have a diverse group of people that are all united together. So like in the church, for instance, it doesn't matter what language you speak or what culture you are or what ethnicity you are, right? So it's diverse, but we are united in what? In the common faith, right? In a common worship of God, right? So there is diversity, but there is unity. But if you have diversity for the sake of diversity alone, without any unity, what you have is chaos, Right? You have nothing in common between anyone and, and, and fundamental differences between people. Like you never hear someone say uh, when they're, for instance, considering marrying another person, be like, yeah, I chose to marry them because we're so different. Like nobody says that. Like you say, I, I, we have so much in common, right? We have so much in common. I want to marry them. We have so much in common. Not because we're different. Because logically it makes sense. You get along with people that have something in common with you. So, so again, I'm not trying to say that the church is not open to a diverse group. Obviously it is. But there has to be some caveat to that, some restriction, some limitation. It is not ultimate diversity to the maximum amount without anything. No, there are some things we have to believe together. When we all say the creed, we believe the same creed. We believe the same faith. We, we, we don't allow people to come and change the creed. It's like, oh, no, I believe in a different creed. Oh, that's good because we want diversity. No, that's not good. That's not good diversity. Right, So even the concept of diversity itself, like we have to be careful about what we mean and what actually is good. Just changing changes and differences for the sake of differences, that in itself is not necessarily a good thing, right? Because we want to bring people to some common belief, right, that, that, we, um, that we all share. 
That's how we bring unity and, 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 and prevent division, right, in any group, in any organization, whether the country, the church, a company, anyone. Then Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there to this day. So this is a different set of 12 stones. Remember, the first set of 12 stones, he said, bring the stones from the river and bring them with you outside of the river and, and put them as a memorial in the place where you will lodge tonight. So on the, on the shore, right, on the ground. And the, but here he's saying, now he's taking up a different set of stones, and putting them in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood. So this is yet another memorial, right? Just as we have the memorial of the, the, the 12 tribes of Israel and how God led them through the Jordan, we also have a memorial of that this is the point here in the midst of the river where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the priests stood, that then resulted in the, 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 the river uh, ceasing to flow so that we could cross over so the priests who bore the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua and the people hurried and crossed over then it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over that the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed over in the presence of the people so all the people um, are are crossing over and the men of Reuben, the men of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over armed before the children of Israel. As Moses had spoken to them, about 40,000 prepared to for war crossed over and before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. So why is this significant? Why is he mentioning this? What's significant about Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh? You mentioned this last time. They are the tribes that asked Moses to remain on the other side of the Jordan. They liked the land on the other side. They didn't want to have their inheritance be on the west side. They wanted to stay on the east side because it was um, good for their flocks and it was uh, an expansive land. And so Moses agreed under the condition that they would cross over. So like their women and children and possessions and everything would stay in the land on the, on the east side. But the men would cross over the Jordan to help in the battle in order to fight with all of the other tribes. So it's not that they would just stay kind of separate and isolated and not really fighting with their brethren, but they would cross over and fight with them. And then finally, once the victory was won, then they could return uh, again and to go back to their land. So 40,000 prepared for war from those tribes, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, the 40,000 men from those tribes prepared in order to also um, like they also crossed over so that they could fight with the remaining uh, other tribes. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. So as God had said he would exalt Joshua, he is, they are seeing now with their own eyes the miracles. They are seeing the things that God is working with Joshua, and so they are confirmed now that indeed God has accepted Joshua, that Joshua is the next leader. Joshua is the one who took kind of the reins of leadership from Moses and that they are confident in his leadership. And when it says they feared him, it doesn't mean like they're afraid of him, but that they respect him and they see him as the legitimate uh, leader um, among them. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. So they were the last ones to leave the Jordan. And it came to pass, when the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet touched the dry land, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. So when they walked out, everything turned back to normal. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they camped in Gilgal on the east of on the east border of Jericho. Okay, what is the significance of this uh, tenth day of the first month? That he says, now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month. 
some other event happen on the 10th day of the first month? The Passover. Yes. The first Passover, right? That was um, in, in Exodus 12, verse 3, when God told them, when, when were, where, where, what did they do or what was happening at the first Passover? Um, the Passover is multiple. Is um, yeah, I, I can't remember. I, I'm sure it's the first, it's the tenth day of the first month because that's what it says in Exodus twelve three. But you're right. There's something else is the fourteenth day, but I can't I can't remember exactly off the top of my head. The feast of the first fruit, the harvest. Okay, I can't I can't remember either. Um. So what was happening at the first Passover? Why was it called Passover? Right, so it was the 10th plague, right? The 10th plague uh, where the angel of death was going to come and kill the firstborn male of all the families in Egypt except for the ones who had the blood of the lamb, so they would celebrate the Passover and slaughter the lamb, put the, the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the lintel of the door, and the, the, the houses that had this blood, the angel of death would not enter to kill the firstborn. And of course, the Hebrew people were the ones that celebrated this and did this, and so their firstborns were safe, where all the Egyptians' um, firstborns had died. So it's like saying that this entering into the um, into the into the promised land coincided with the Passover, like as though the celebration of the Passover, which was the sparing of the firstborn from the death through the blood of the lamb, coincided with entering the promised land. Like salvation was accomplished through the shedding of blood, right? Because the promised land represents heaven, right? That's what I that's what it represents. So it's like the people entering into heaven on the same feast day as the Passover day, okay? So um, keep in mind that all throughout the time when the people were um, uh, wandering in the desert, they were not keeping the Passover, right? They were not, they were not, um, they were not keeping the feast days. They were, not, they were not able to do all of that, okay? which is the first month. Because Passover is celebrated for like seven days. Yeah. Um, and, and the Day of Atonement is one of them. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, so that's the spiritual understanding or like the spiritual significance of this. is Just as the Israelites um, uh, were saved through the blood of the Lamb on this day of the Passover, so they try, so this is the same day that they entered in the promised land symbolically entering into heaven okay and those 12 stones which they took out of the jordan joshua set up in gilgal so those are the 12 stones then he spoke to the children of israel saying when your children ask their fathers in time to come saying what are these stones then you shall let your children know saying israel crossed over this jordan on dry land for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord that is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. The idea of the crossing over the water also makes a connection because all of the people around, like the Israelites were infamous. Like they, everyone knew what happened with them when they when they came out of Egypt and the plagues and how God had parted the Red Sea for them like it was such a dramatic event that even now 40 years later um, all of the people remembered all the people knew all the nations around them like they realized this is actually what when 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 the spies went to Rahab uh, like it was clear that like they knew and the people were frightened because they knew that the Israelites were at the border. They knew that the Israelites were coming, and they knew the God of Israel was very powerful. So here, by having kind of a very similar miracle, 
of them crossing over the Jordan as before, it's kind of like God is sending a message like, I'm the same God. Like, I'm the same God who did this. I'm still doing it now. I was with the people then. I'm still with um, the people now. Okay? <coughs> so it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until he had crossed over that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. So you see, even now they have this reputation. They see that they are coming and they know that this is bad news for them. Uh, at the time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. Okay, why did Moses do this? Sorry, why did uh, Joshua do this? Why did God ask Joshua to do this? So more than a memorial, right? Like it was required that every single person would be circumcised, every male would be circumcised, otherwise they would be cut off from Israel. Like they were not part of Israel. So why is it that they were not circumcised? Because again, when they were walking through the desert, they were not practicing all of the practices that God had asked them to do. So this is like a new beginning for them. They are like coming into the land. Uh, God is renewing this covenant with them. He's making sure that they're all circumcised. And when it says circumcised a second time, it doesn't mean that each person was already circumcised and now they're being circumcised again. It's like saying, like, like just as prior before, there was like a, a, like a mass circumcision, like all the people that hadn't been circumcised, everyone should be circumcised. So we are doing another one now that all the people were new, right? Because it, it goes on and he says what? And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. So this group that is now entering is the offspring of those who were present at the time when they left Egypt, right? Going back again to the memorial idea, right? Imagine that this second generation, right, who were not the ones who physically observed themselves uh, as adults, the crossing of the Red Sea. Imagine that they had no connection with anything that had happened before. Then these are aimless people wandering in a desert. They don't know anything about anything. They don't know that who they are. They don't know the covenant with Abraham. They were not circumcised. They're not practicing the Passover. Like nothing that had come before um, they would have been practicing or they would even know about. So God is reminding them of all these things. And, God, and they're putting these memorials so that they, they have a kind of identity to know what is it that God has done. Just as God was, was with our ancestors, our, our parents, right, when they came out of Egypt by crossing the Red Sea, so he is equivalently with us as we are crossing the Jordan River, right? And that this is the land that God had prom promised Abraham hundreds of years before, okay? So, so completely new generation okay for all the people who came out had been circumcised but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised for the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. So why did he do this? Why did he allow them to die this way? Why was he waiting for them to die? Why did the people wander for 40 years? Because of their disobedience. Because God told them to enter into the promised land 40 years before. And that's when they chose the 12 spies, including Joshua and Caleb. And they spied the land and only Joshua and Caleb came back saying, the land is good and the people are in it. God will grant us victory over them. Let's enter into the land now as God has said. 
Whereas all the other ten spies said, no, these people are giants, and if we try to enter, we will be destroyed, and we are like grasshoppers in their sight, and all this. And so the people, out of fear, did not enter, right? So God said, okay, we're going to wander in the desert, wander in the desert, wander in the desert, until all those people who didn't want to enter the promised land died. And who is remaining? Their children. Again, their children grew up in the wilderness, their children don't have a concept of what it means to live apart from the protection of God. Because they at no time did they ever live in a civilized you know, settlement. They're just wandering. Who is it who's giving them food? God is giving us food from heaven. You know, it's like, imagine growing up in such a, in such a way that you, from the moment that you are born, you are sustained by miracles every single day. Like, like nothing, like it's not, it's not, there's nothing natural about what's happening. Your clothes are, are sustained by, uh, by miracles. Your food is by miracles. Your water is coming out of rocks by miracles. You know, everything about you, the, the, you see a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud in the day leading you everywhere you go. This is this generation, okay? So this generation from its infancy knew that God was present. And knew that God was taking care of them. So those who doubted and those who were stubborn and those who didn't believe and those who had all of these thoughts from before, they're dead now. Okay? That's why you, you will see how when the people enter into Israel, they are doing everything God says. Like, at least at the beginning. Like, at the beginning, there is a great sense of, like, obedience to God. Even like this famous thing of them when they get to Jericho and God tells them walk around the city, you know, every day and blow trumpets. Like there's no reason why that makes any sense. And yet the people didn't grumble against it. They didn't complain against it. They just they said, okay, you know, God is doing all these other things for us, so we're going to just do whatever he tells us to do, right? That previous generation, very likely, if God told them walk around the city blowing trumpets, they would be like, no. We, that doesn't make any sense. Why are you telling us to blow trumpets? Why are you telling us to go around, right? So, so now is the time that God has decided the people are ready uh, to enter the, wi- the, the, the Canaan, the promised land, and this is why they wandered for 40 years. And so they did not have this benefit of the circumcision from before. Then Joshua circumcised their sons, whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Okay, And this is the verse in Genesis 17:14 that speaks about the importance of circumcision. It says, And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Right? So they don't want to be in that state. They're, they're now inheriting, they're inheriting the covenant. This is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made to Abraham. And so they're, they're, they're wanting to be, again, just as Joshua told them before, sanctify yourselves. For God is doing these wonders through you, okay? Here also they are they are being sanctified. They are they are having these symbols of the covenant on them to have a right relationship with God. Then the Lord said to Joshua, "This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day." Okay, so the word Gilgal means rolling away. Okay, as though God is um, intending to roll away from them the reproach of servitude, right? Um, because because in their mind, their parents were slaves, right? Like He's like changing their mindset, right? You are no longer slaves. You are not the children of slaves, but you are conquerors. You are victors. You are the ones that I am going to give this whole land to, and you will be the ones to conquer them, right? So he's like elevating their status, right? I'm rolling away the reproach. Origin, he says, to approach the meaning of this phrase, all the people, even though having been under the law and having received the teachings of Moses, yet they still had the reproach of Egypt in them, namely the reproach of sin. Does not he, mean, does he, does not he mean here the reproach of Egypt? But Jesus came and gave us the second circumcision through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit 
purified our spirits, rolled away that reproach, and granted us in that place the promise by the good conscious, uh, 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 good conscience toward God. Right. So also in a spiritual sense, right, that this, like through the second circumcision, which is baptism, that God is taking away our reproach. He's taking away our sin. He's taking away our slavery to sin, sin and to making us to be children of God. So truly here, the people are the children of God and they are not the slaves that they once were. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. So there's the, the 14th day as well, right? So it's, it's, it's several days. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. So they, they, they practiced it on that day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. This is really cool, okay? Like, they had had manna for 40 years, and now on this day, the day that they entered, that they no longer needed the manna, because remember, this land was categorized as what? A land flowing with milk and honey. It was a very, very fertile land that anyone could go there and would find food. Remember, these are millions of people, right? This is a lot of people. It's not like a small group of people. That, that, that this land could support them, right? That's how great this land was. So now that they had entered into this land, they no longer had need of the manna. They could pick food and, 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 and do everything that they needed the normal way, okay? And so it is on this time <coughs> that God removed the manna from them. And it shows, like, God is not arbitrary in what he does. God is very thoughtful in what he does. And he is very aware of our needs to give us the things that we need when we need them, right? And leading us into uh, a place where maybe we do not need them anymore, okay? This is true also of our spiritual growth, okay? There are phases in our spiritual growth where it's like we need manna from God. Like every day we need, we need manna from God all the time. And we are unable to live without it. In the sense that to motivate us to grow spiritually, God is giving us an extra measure of grace all the time because we are yet not able to stand on our two feet and to walk on our own. God is giving us like this extra nourishment all the time, all the time, all the time. And maybe at some point when God deems that we have now reached a status of maturity uh, and experience that we are able to go without this manna because now we are self-motivated, that we are self-disciplined, that we have a stronger faith where we don't need God to give us this spiritual manna all the time, that he takes the manna away. And maybe our first reaction to this is that, God, you have taken away something from me why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me? Why you do not share with me this gift, this spiritual gift that you have been giving me all along? But the true reason is, is now you do not need it from me. Not because I've abandoned you or I've taken it from you or because I don't care about you. It's because I do care about you and I do know your situation and I have chosen not to give it to you because this is what's best for you now. And this is what God did. God did by no means abandon these people because the manna stopped. No, he knew that they now had the means in order to feed themselves without it. So God will provide for us through the normal means unless the normal means are not sufficient. You know, like if, if we, we, we hear many miracles, right? And all of these miracles are a result of need. Somebody needs something that cannot be done in a normal way. And so God provides it for them. God is, is, is not limited by the normal, of what we would call the normal. But he uses the normal most of the time because the normal is usually available. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went out to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Okay, so he went, he went to the, he, he, he crossed over, and Jericho is near, there near the shores of the Jordan. And he saw this man. And he went up to this man, and he said to him, are you for us or are you for our enemies? So he said, no, 
But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. So who is this commander of the army of the Lord? This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Pre-incarnate meaning before his incarnation. Christ is not incarnate here. He looks as a man, but he does not have the flesh as, as, as he would have after his incarnation. Okay, Joshua, when he saw him, he saw something in him unique. We don't know what, because it doesn't describe here his appearance. How is it that Joshua knew that there was something special about this person? Okay, um, this is what St. Anthony the Great says. When you see a vision... Do not fall down with, your, with fear, but ask bravely, who are you, and from where have you come? If the vision is holy, you can be sure of that, when, you f when your fear is transformed into joy. But, but, if, but if it is from the devil, the vision would instantly weaken before the steadfastness of your mind. That is how Joshua, the son of Man Nun, did, not, uh, did to make sure of the identity of who came to help him. So he's saying, Joshua saw him, he didn't know who he was, and so he asked this question. And because this was truly Christ, it became manifested to him. Whereas if this were not from God, it also would have been manifested. Origen said, Joshua realized by spirit that he was not facing someone sent by the Lord, but the Lord himself. He would not worship the Lord if he could not recognize him. So what Origen is saying is that Somehow, Joshua knew that this was not simply an angel. Because if it were an angel, he would not have bowed down and worshipped. Just as in the book of Revelation, like St. John, uh, not realizing who he's speaking with, when he sees an angel, he bowed down to worship, and the angel told him, no, do not worship me, I am not God. So here, Joshua is not, uh, Joshua is realizes somehow that, that this is truly God himself, Right? And so he bows down and worships him. And Isaiah 55 says, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Just as here he is called the commander of the army of the Lord. In Isaiah, the, the messianic prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ, he says about him that he is a leader and a commander for the people, okay? And this is who was appearing here to Joshua. So God is giving reassurance, again, because he is they're about to enter into all kinds of battles. So God is giving reassurance to the people and to Joshua that who is the real leader? The real leader is Christ. The real leader is God himself, not Joshua and not any other military leader, that God is the one who is fighting for them. That's why it's so interesting. This is the only place where we read about uh, an appearance of Christ or he refers to himself as the commander of the army, right? It is uh, like a, a military description because that's exactly what the people were facing. They were about to face all kinds of military wars. So by Christ coming and saying about himself that he is the commander of the army, what he is saying is the armies of the Lord are the ones that are going to fight, right? It is not the armies of man. It is the armies of the Lord that are going to fight. And what we will see is that the armies of the Lord, they fight in a very strange way. They don't fight in the way that we would imagine armies to fight. Again, going back to the example of Jericho, right? Like, like this, is, this is happening right before the fall of the walls of Jericho, which fell, which fell without anyone fighting anyone, okay? So, so what does it mean? It means that in this event of the, falls of the, the fall of the walls of Jericho, the, the armies of the Lord were the ones fighting. And this is the way that the armies of the Lord were fighting, through the trumpets. Okay? Again, from a human perspective, it seems very strange to us. Right? We don't understand how these things happen. And we don't understand why God is saying, do such and such. Okay? But those people who believed and trusted as, the, as they are going to, will see the armies of the Lord fighting for them in an invisible way, in a way that doesn't make sense, in a way that's not clear 
but through faith they trust and they believe and they know that God is fighting. So here, God is making himself known that he is the one who is fighting the battles that the people are about to fight, and it is not through their own effort. It doesn't mean that the people just sit back and do nothing, though, right? Just as the example that we've seen in the past where Moses is praying on the mountain and Joshua is leading the people in battle, right? That Joshua had to fight, but it is through God that the victory was won. And glory be to God forever. Amen. Any comments or questions about any of these chapters before we conclude? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you, O Lord, because you provide for us everything that we need, and you offer it to us in due season. Please be with us, O God, and help us to remain faithful, even during seasons of waiting, even as we are being prepared, O Lord, for the next phase or stage in our life. We ask you, O God, to be with us and to enrich us and to fill us with joy and peace and comfort and to prepare us, O Lord, for the next thing that is to come. Just as you prepared, O Lord, those people who were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years for this moment of them crossing over the Jordan River and entering into the promised land. We ask you, O God, to be with us, and we ask that you would grant us a joy and a desire to follow you and to submit our will to you, uh, no matter where, O Lord, you lead and no matter how, O Lord, your will is manifested. We thank you for your goodness and kindness. Protect us from the wickedness that is in this world and help us, O Lord, to be a light that shines in the darkness so that those people who are outside the church might see it and come to you and have salvation from you. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom.